really, we're not really kind of planning that, but that's just kind of how this hump day show did unfold. But not only we, we right now in the middle of football season, we are dead set in the middle of winter meetings time when a lot of spiciness in the MLB offseason does take place this year in Nashville. So let's go right out to Nashville and do welcome in John Morosi, who does a tremendous job covering the league for MLB Network. John, it's Ryan Hickey here on CBS Sports Radio. Thanks so much for giving us a few minutes and what I'm sure has been a hectic last few days here. <laughs> Ryan, thank you very much. Yeah, a busy, busy week for us at MLB Network. Uh, this is one of those nights where once you get to Wednesday, you're hoping to get big news and we might still get the final announcement of the Juan Soto trade tonight, but uh, it's been a, a week of a lot of waiting, waiting on Shohei Otani. And I think as soon as he makes his decision, we believe in the next few days, a lot of other things will follow. Yeah, that's the, right. The, the big one here, the elephant in the room is Shohei Otani's future. So there's not a lot of details out there, John, so far. So I guess from the little details we have, is it can you confidently say by, let's just say, end of week by Sunday, we will know Shohei Otani's team he's playing for going forward? That's, that's what I've been told. But I, I also think it's very much a fluid situation uh, in terms of where, where he'll be able to go. Uh, I, we do believe that by Sunday he'll make his decision, and, and we've been told at different times that, that he's probably looking at narrowing that list of teams down, and, and we expect, again, the, the Blue Jays and the Dodgers and the Giants, they've all been part of the conversation. Uh, and I guess there's one thing I would say about Shohei Otani's decision process here is that he's kept us guessing, <laughs> and, and we're not entirely sure uh, the, the day or the hour, although I do think that based on what I've been told by people close to the situation, we should hear by Sunday. That's, that is the day that uh, sort of is circled in everybody's calendar, and, and, and it would allow things to, I think, progress a bit from there because you've also got uh, Yoshinobu Yamamoto coming over from Japan. He's likely to make his choice in the next week to 10 days. So once Otani signs, once Yamamoto signs, a lot of the other dominoes in the offseason will fall. Uh, but I think we're all waiting for the same thing. We're waiting for the choice of someone who is famously a little mysterious, uh, a little bit hard to read. And, and I think that all of that is part of, part of who he is, part of his persona, part of uh, a truly unique person that we've never seen the likes of ever before and uh, would more than likely uh, surprise us perhaps with, uh, with how and where he reveals his next team to be. We are talking to MLB Network Insider John Morosi uh, live from the winter meetings in Nashville. Do we have it's I feel bad even asking this because it's just so much mystery here, especially your last answer highlights that. Do you have any idea, John, like how many finalists there are in terms of Shohei Otani sweepstakes here? No, it's a very fair question. I, I think we're down to five. And five. and I mentioned okay. at the outset uh, Dodgers, Blue Jays, Giants. I would also mention the possibility that he goes back to the Angels and also the Cubs. I think we're looking at a big five. I, I would be very, very skeptical that there is some mystery team involved that we've never heard of. Uh, I, I think that it's probably one of those five. Uh, of course, last year, Aaron Judge considered the Padres. The Padres didn't really make a push until the final week, uh, and, and he ended up going back to the Yankees. So uh, it's, it is I'm probably going to be one of those five teams. I, I, I've heard the most in the last couple of days about the Dodgers and the Blue Jays. And, mm -hmm. and it would be a little bit of a surprise if he did not pick one of those two teams, just because uh, the Dodgers are the most obvious choice. They're the team that, that 
it plays in Southern California, the consistent winners. They've got Mookie Betts. They've got Freddie Freeman. They've got even the, the physician who performed his surgery, which is important from the standpoint of health and maintaining what he can do. And then on the flip side, the, the Blue Jays are the wild card here. They, they have certainly respected his, his privacy all along and how, how he's conducted things. And, and uh, they did, though, according to different accounts, have a very uh, elaborate presentation to him on Monday at their beautiful new spring training complex in Dunedin, Florida. So there's, uh, they've put their best foot forward. And I can see if, if you're a, a player who kind of wants to, to have a, a unique experience living in, in an international destination, of course, the show being an international icon and in Toronto being our one international major league city. It could be a perfect fit in that regard. The city itself, um, Toronto is such a magnificent place to, to live and work. It's very clean downtown, very, very beautiful in a lot of ways, right on the water. So I, I think that he, it would appeal to him in a lot of ways. He also has had pretty good numbers at Rogers center playing <laughs> against the Jays. So maybe some good memories there are, are part of it. It's just, it's such a unique um, time because we're just, we're trying to, discern and and divine the wishes and the, and the preferences of someone who has not granted a public press conference in four months four months I mean, we, we have not there was a brief obviously at the time of his uh, mvp award but that was not really an open forum so we really don't know we do not know uh directly from him a whole lot so it's just a matter of of all of us here you know, going to your sources people who are close to, to the situation who can speak to what's going on, but it's, I'll be honest, it's been a, it's been tough. We had a lot more information to deal with last year with Aaron judge uh, than we do now with Shohei Otani. That's for sure. Yeah. It's information is few and far between without a doubt. It is Ryan Hickey with you on CBS sports, right? We are talking to tremendous MLB insider, John Morosi right here on the show. Do you, I know we have, you said about four or five finalists for Shohei. Do we have any idea like how many teams actually made a pitch, reached out, tried to get a, a meeting with Shohei? Because again, this is obviously one of the big, you could argue maybe the biggest free agent in MLB history and is on track to maybe sign the biggest contract we've ever seen. You would think like he should be every, every team should be like at least trying to call his agent and try to set up a meeting. Is there any sort of clarity in terms of like how many teams were truly serious, let's say about setting right. up and trying to sign Shohei? Well, it's a very good point, Ryan. And and a number of, of days ago, I guess it was probably 10 days or so ago, uh, Jeff Patton of ESPN reported that uh, several teams had been informed that they were not part of the final group and that they had pivoted to go on to different pursuits. The Red Sox were one. The Rangers were another. And and I think that when you look at that group of teams, there, there were certainly excuse me, clubs that had different ideas and, and, uh, and items on their to-do list this offseason. The Mets were another one. And, and in some ways, if they weren't going to be the favorites to get him, it actually probably was, was a favor of sorts that he told them then because it has allowed True. the Mets to go more fully into their pursuit of Yoshinobu Yamamoto. There were reports today uh, from Will Salmon of The Athletic that actually Steve Cohen flew all the way to Japan to have a conversation and a meal um, with Yoshinobu. So there's a, a real serious uh, effort, I think, going on multiple tracks. And to your point, yes, every team in, in a certain way would love to have it. But I think a lot of teams realize very quickly that we're talking about a $500 million or so contract. And once you get to that point, it's not really feasible for a lot of teams who have 
smaller payrolls. You had to be in a situation where your owner wanted to do this, where you saw the ability to, to make back some secondary and tertiary revenues. And I really think that it's not an accident that the teams that seem to be most strongly in the mix right now, uh, specifically the Dodgers and Blue Jays, mm-hmm. have their own sports networks, their own ability to potentially, if you think about the rights and, and what it means for your local rights, to sell those streaming rights all around the world and, and to have people uh, watching your games uh, on the other side of the world, what that would mean for you and your, and your bottom line. So it's, this is not just, hey, I need a DH, I'm going to go hire a DH and sign a DH. The, the, the reason here is that it, it, it is a full franchise organizational move similar to renovating or building a new stadium. I mean, it, it, is like, it, is, it becomes part of the infrastructure, Ryan, of your entire team and, and what you're all about. And I think for that reason, this is being looked upon as, as yes, a big expenditure, but also the possibility of a revenue generator for, for both the objective and also the more subjective elements of, of what your brand recognition is in the world. Right. I mean, you look, that's true. That's why I feel like the, the market, again, we've heard, like you, you mentioned before, like, you know, teams got told, you know, hey, no longer the running, move on sort of thing. So the interest is bigger than four or five teams. But to your point, it's like it's a massive expense. Let's just say $500 million to keep even round numbers there. But it's like you, I mean, if you bring Shohei to town with the fanfare just from, you know, the love he has in Japan, like you are basically buying and it's a massive country. And now all of a sudden, let's just say randomly, if you go to the Pirates, right, a team that traditionally would not be into it, it's like, well, now all of a sudden, everyone in Japan, you believe, is now all of a sudden into the Pittsburgh Pirates to watch Shohei. Right. And it's like one of right. those well, where it's, right, it's, it's money well spent. Exactly right. I, I go back to this. You know, this was during the World Baseball Classic. Uh, Japan had played against uh, the Czech Republic in the World Baseball Classic. And when Otani arrived in the, in the U.S. for the final round of the, of the WBC, just as a sign of goodwill, he was wearing a Czech team hat, just like as a, out of respect to his opponents, just sort of, you know, sporting the hat of a new emerging baseball country. And, and many people said through the Czech Baseball Association, that was like one of the best things that ever happened to them. incredible. <laughs> was, was where they're at. Uh, and he was going through customs, getting his picture taken, and everybody saw it. And, and that's, that, I just think, speaks to what it does. And you know, now the one thing from a timing perspective, it's, it's important to note is that usually when you look at the, 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 the timing of a game, let's say, uh, if, you, if you're the Blue Jays, I'll be curious to see if they end up changing any of their, their game times a little bit because if, if you were to sign there, because, of course, it's like on a 20, it's like a 12-hour cycle. So uh, roughly, I'm saying, like a 7 o'clock game, p.m., is a seven o'clock game AM in Japan. So hmm. if you wanted to potentially have a, if you were theoretically going to, going to be uh, with play for the Dodgers, it's always been the case that the West coast games do quite well in Japan because you've got a, a West coast team like the Mariners when they had Ichiro or the angels, their, their game is on in the midday. So like 10 o'clock in the morning in right. Tokyo, where you get a big audience, kind of like how we watch the World Cup in soccer in the middle of the day. That's how they would watch their baseball. And so um, I do think from a streaming perspective and just the timing of the world, it, it advantages teams that are in the Pacific time zone because it makes that, that midday morning viewing experience a little bit easier for Japanese fans to stay connected with their stars than, say, a game that starts at 6 or 7 in the morning. 
That's a good point. That's a really good point. We are talking to John Morosi of, of MLB Network. Last question on Shohei here, John, because I know, again, there's not a lot of information, but do we have any idea like, what he is prioritizing? Like you said before, like the two teams that you expect him to go to, either the Dodgers or the Blue Jays, I, obviously two totally different, I mean, not totally different, that's unfair maybe, but like two different teams where Dodgers, right, boom, you're a World Series contender. I think the Blue Jays still have a few moves to make here, so it's not like it's clear as, oh, he's prioritizing winning, and every team that's a finalist, it's like, oh, I have a chance to win a World Series. Do you have any idea like, what the number one priority for Shohei and his new team, what he's looking for? Yeah, that's a great question, Ryan, and and I think that it's a collection of priorities. I mean, we've heard him talk about the culture of a team being important, uh, the the I think the opportunity for him to have some level of 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 separation between his work life and his personal life. I mean, again, I, I reiterate, he really does clearly based on what we're talking about. Ryan values privacy, so oh, yeah. I, I I think a, a team and a market that might allow him to have some element of distance. I don't know, and obviously he's not going to play for the Yankees. I I don't know that that would have been the best fit for him based on what he wants. And so I, I think that having some distance, having, uh, having some space is good. Um, and, and I think having a, having a controlled environment is important too. You know, that's where the, the West coast, I think had some advantages. He, he likes obviously from a standpoint of rest and, and the pitching conditions to be good. That's why Anaheim where you don't have a ton of rainouts, obviously was a good spot for him to play. And similarly, remember about Toronto, they've got a dome. Yeah, yeah. You've got a dome in Toronto, the Dodger Stadium. You almost never have a rain out there. Um, San Francisco, usually the weather there is excellent too. So uh, for a lot of reasons, I think the, the, the places that have seemed to emerge the most, with the exception of Chicago, where obviously we know uh, the weather can be a little difficult early and late in the season, he, he does seem to have chosen places where the atmosphere is more or less controlled and and, and that is more or less to his liking and, and cities that – with the exception of the Angels, are are in relatively competitive cycles for their for their organization. All right, we are talking to John Morosi, MLB Network, tremendous insider there. Um, for Juan Soto, John, at this point, it's just a, a formality. Does it feel like a basically a lock that he's going to get traded to the Yankees? Yes, uh, based on all the appearances right now, that that deal is on the verge of completion, being finalized. There's a review of medical information. Uh, on the part of the Padres, they, they got a lot of pitching back, and usually when pitchers are involved, uh, medical information tends to be scrutinized, and so that's all happening right now. Uh, I, I do believe, though, at the end of the day, whether it's tonight or tomorrow or at some point in time uh, in the next several days, Juan Soto is going to be a Yankee, and uh, at this moment, it's exactly what the Yankees have needed. They've needed left-handed power, the, the, the franchise of Reggie Jackson and Roger Maris and Babe Ruth didn't have enough lefty power this past year, so now now they've got it, and and they needed a bit of uh, they needed to make a statement here, and I think they've, yeah. they've done that with with the Soto move. Uh, they still have some pitching that to work through. They've got to find some depth after Garrett Cole, which I think they'll do. But in general, this was a very very important step for the organization, and and I think we'll we'll, we'll see them make additional moves. But there was no way, no way they could have called this a successful offseason without adding a player of the caliber of a Juan Soto or potentially a Shohei Otani. And with Otani not being an option, uh, it made it all the more crucial to get Soto. They found a willing trade partner in the Padres, and now they appear to have their guy. It's amazing. It took this long to finally get a lefty bat with that short porch there in right field for the Yankees. But it seems like you just said it's all but official now, just a waiting game. 
So we get the A-OK. Last question, John. I'm just curious this from an insider's perspective because I think the insider life is very intriguing to me. So you are right now in the in the hotbed right of the uh, MLB world at the winter meetings. Your information is, or your job is the information getting business. What is your like life, day-to-day life like at these winter meetings where everyone's in Nashville? Is it like, are you hanging out by the bathrooms to get information? Are you going to like the bars, like in the hotel room on the phone? Like what is just like the insider life like at like an event like this at the MLB winter meetings where it's just everyone's there? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, it's changed over time. I'm, I'm lucky that when I first started covering these, I was a newspaper reporter. And so I got, and that was back in the day where I, I like to tell the story. It's kind of funny. It makes me sound like I'm 90 years old. But back when I first started filing stories, it was first from the Seattle PI back in 2005. Um, you would file your story and then say, hey, you know, don't don't put my story online because I want, I don't want the competition to know what I've got before it shows up in the paper tomorrow morning. Like that was what we would say Hmm. because that's what we cared about. We cared about the paper. Uh, And obviously things have changed. And I went from writing for a paper to writing for a website and then eventually to to this. Um, And so, you know, now my focus is more, is more on air uh, on, uh, on television. And so, you know, we've got a, a busy set. There are often guests that come by the set. Uh, I'll see agents that I know, whether it's, uh, in the restaurants here or coming and going to the set. Uh, you, you try to hang out in a spot where you might see people pass by, uh, but you also want to be respectful of their time. And you also realize that sometimes you can talk to a lot of people just over text, but there's no replacement for in-person. I think that that's one thing where, to be honest, uh, when the pandemic hit and we obviously didn't have a winter meetings in 20 uh, or 21 because that was due to the lockout at the time, um, I missed, I missed it. I missed being around people in person. I missed being able to, to walk and have spontaneous conversations with, with people at the meetings and meet new people and understand who the up and coming people are in the industry, because it can be hard to really know that when you're, when you're going around the ballparks during the course of the year. So you're so focused on, on the games themselves. So I, I like to look at this as both, as both a sprint and a marathon. The sprint is I want to make sure that if I can figure out where Shohei Otani is going, obviously I want to know that. <laughs> but also you want to make sure that you're not too beholden to your phone. I, I really try. I'm a parent, Ryan. I want to try to uh, model for my kids, you know, what, what we value as, as a family and, and conversations and, and being present in the moment when you're around people. And, and listen, in a week like this, it's tough. But um, I, I try to remind myself that, you know, darn it, we're, we're not here to just – be looking at our phones all the day we're, we're here to have conversations with people meet new people make new friends and and connect because that's honestly what we missed the most when when the pandemic was was around so we uh, i try to rem- remember that and be grateful for being here and so yeah hustling for news 100 percent. but when i see friends new friends old friends you gotta you gotta have you know have a moment shake hands connect and talk and and not be too uh too into the phone and if it if, if it costs you a scoop here and there well I can live with that. That's I, I, I like to think that we're here for reasons that transcend uh, knowing where a certain lefty reliever or a, <laughs> or a second baseman is going to sign, you know? Organized chaos, it sounds like there, John. Fun, yes, but is. busy, but beautiful, huh? Beautiful chaos. Beautiful <laughs> chaos, right? It is. It is all the above. Check out his face all over MLB Network. Does a great job getting information and reporting on the great sport of baseball for MLB Network. John Morosi, it's a busy time, but thank you so much for giving us a few minutes here. Really do appreciate it. 
Ryan, all the best, my friend. Happy holidays to you and yours, and uh, please do stay in touch. We'll, uh, we'll have to catch up again soon. Absolutely. Likewise to you. Enjoy the winter meetings. It's been an absolute, yeah, ride in terms of trying to figure out where the hell Shohei Otani is going to go with no information given at all here. Um, if I'm, I mean, if I'm Shohei, look, Dodgers, you get L.A., you win a World Series, it's all there for you. I, that's to be a, a tough sell to go anywhere else right now but L.A., uh, but hopefully find out sooner rather than later. All right, when we return here, it is Ryan Hickey on CBS Sports Radio. What a Jags employee is doing and somehow got away with is mind-boggling. We'll tell you the details next. It's Ryan Hickey right here on CBS Sports Radio. This is Hick at Night. Here's Ryan Hickey. It is Ryan Hickey with you right here on CBS Sports Radio. This is a wild story right now coming out of The Athletic that involves a former Jacksonville Jaguars employee. His name is Amit Patel. He used to work for the Jaguars from 2018 to 2023. He was fired back in February. He is being accused of You ready for this? Stealing more than $22 million from the Jaguars from the course of 2019 to 2023. He stole $22 million from the Jaguars, amongst other things, to buy himself two vehicles, a condo, a designer watch, and you ready for this? He also actually spent it on some some cryptocurrency. Swing and mess on that one some online gambling, but this is, I think he's a criminal, right? But so I don't want to give him too much credit here, but this is, you talk about thinking ahead. I have never seen a criminal be this smart before. You ready? He not only spent or, or excuse me, stole $22 million. We're using that money. <laughs> he uh, got a criminal defense lawyer, uh, law firm on retainer. Basically knowing when I get found out, I already got my lawyers paid for so I could go fight this in court. That is incredible. Now, I don't know, again, how much those defense lawyers are going to be able to, to save him from going to jail. But you talk about forward thinking, having a true scheme here. But I, what I don't get, I'm not a money guy. Look, I'm in sports radio. I'm not very smart. Don't do a lot of math. Not a big money guy. Don't got a lot of money to spend. So why be a money guy? But So I just can't comprehend if you're the Jacksonville Jaguars. I get it. Shad Khan, their owner, is worth billions of dollars. But $22 million, even to a billionaire, that's not a rounding error. And that's not just, oh, that was just five bucks you dropped in the street and didn't really realize it. Like, how do you not notice $22 million missing off your books over the course of four years? Apparently, like, doubled a lot of, like, expense reports. So, like, flights and hotels for, like, the team. He would just do it again, but that money would be spent for him, not the team. Like, again, I'm not in finance. I'm not in HR. I I just don't know how you you miss that, frankly, if you're the Jaguars. 
But wow, $22 million had private chartered or, or chartered private jets, rental residents, bought a Tesla, there you go, and a Nissan pickup truck. That's interesting, right? I guess, I feel like, you know, which one doesn't belong? No disrespect to Nissan, of course, but buying a Tesla, you think you're going to go, and by the way, you're, you're buying a Tesla with someone else's money, you think you go high end. I mean, in this report from The Athletic, he's accused of buying a, $95,000 watch. So he's no, you know, not shy about spending big money on some uh, nice amenities. Country club membership. That's, that's pretty good. Not bad. So Amit Patel, former Jacksonville Jaguars employee spending or stealing, excuse me, stealing and spending $22 million. Cars, cars, Condo, watch, and a defense lawyer. Holy cow, using the Jaguars' money to steal it and then also pay for his own defense in court. I'll give him credit there. That is creative. That is creative. That is smart. That is forward thinking. Oh, boy. Wow. That's a lot of money to pay back. That's what also like, look, maybe I, I personally, I think I'm too nice. I'm definitely afraid of punishment. So that's why I don't really break the law or even really skirt. I mean, forget about break the law. I'm not. Not a criminal, but like, you know, just even like bend the rules where, you know, punishments are, you know, not as bad as, as going to jail, if you will. But like, that's just, I just don't want to deal with, with, with the, with the punishments, with the penalties. Like if you steal $22 million. I'm assuming bare minimum, you got to pay it back. If not more and probably going to jail. That ain't worth it for four years of a joyride. To me, that ain't worth it. Living a life, I don't know how much Amit was making with the Jaguars, but I'm assuming now that he's a criminal, he's not going to make a lot of money back if he gets another job again. So he'll basically be working to pay that money back for the rest of his life on top of probably going to jail. Punishment right there does not, to me, fit the... Well, the, I should, that's, that's not the right word, or not the uh, right phrase. The risk, there we go. The risk is not worth the reward. Four years of freewheeling, Spend money like a millionaire, only to now get caught four years later and have the rest of your life ruined. I don't know how old he is. I'm assuming he's, I'm assuming he's not 75 years old, where you know, no respect, you don't got a lot of life left to live. Seems like, uh, let's see, no age listed. Again, I'm assuming maybe 40s, 50s, something like that. But you still got a good amount now. Modern, you know, technology, modern medicine. You ain't going anywhere anytime fast. That's a long life to live paying back your debts. All right, it is Ryan Hickey right here on CBS Sports Radio. When we return to wrap up this show, why the NFL head coach has surpassed quarterback when it comes to importance of winning. This is Hick at Night. Here's Ryan Hickey.
Oh, we got opinions, all right. It is Ryan Hickey with you right here on CBS Sports Radio. As a reminder, make sure you think O'Reilly Auto Parts for all your car care needs. Get guaranteed low prices and excellent customer service from where else but the professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts. So I was reading an interesting article today from The Athletic, kind of detailing the firing of Frank Reich, why it happened now in season and why it happened despite Reich being in just year number one in Carolina. And it really had me realize something when it comes to the NFL, and that's this. I think head coach is more important to winning now in today's NFL than quarterback is. Like, if I had to start a team from scratch today, I think I'd rather have an elite offensive-minded head coach than an elite quarterback. Because I think the head coach can do more than the quarterback can. Here's what I mean by that. I think great coaching can overcome subpar quarterback play. But I think great quarterback play is taken down and can't overcome bad coaching. For example, look at the Chargers, look at the Bills. Now, Josh Allen's been a little shaky, but for the most part, he's been pretty good this year. Still one of the top quarterbacks. Both those teams right now outside of the playoff picture looking in. Well, have great quarterbacks, so that shouldn't be the case, right? Well, it is. Why? Bad coaching. Great quarterbacks can't overcome bad coaching. Look at the Colts. Look at the Browns. Look at the Vikings. All three of those teams have lost their quarterback for the season. Yet all three of those teams are right now holding playoff spots. Why is that? Because great head coaching, great offensive-minded head coaching can overcome subpar quarterback play from backup quarterbacks like Gardner Minshew, I mean, Joe Flacco, P.J. Walker, Dorian Thompson-Robinson, all spinning the carousel for the Browns, Joshua Dobbs for the Vikings. When you have a great offensive-minded head coach, you can overcome subpar or, or less talented quarterback play. But when you are a great quarterback and you have a bad head coach, you can't overcome that. That's why I think head coaches now are more important to winning than quarterback is. It's never really been the case, right? We always talk about the most important position in sports is quarterback. We obsess about it 24-7, 365. Anytime a team loses a game, it could be the first game of the year. What is it? Oh, let's tank. Let's go get ourselves Caleb Williams. Let's go get ourselves... Whoever, Bryce Young last year, like the tank is on. Tank for Tua. Forget about just being week number one. Teams, or I should say fans, always look at quarterback first and foremost when it comes to thinking that's what we need to get right in order for us to get on the winning track. I would argue, look around the league. What gets you on the winning track faster and more sustainably is having a great head coach. Because like we just highlighted... Colts, Browns, Vikings, great offensive mind head coach, backup quarterbacks playing, still in the playoff picture. But even it's true, I think, at the elite level, the upper echelon of the NFL. Look at the Eagles, for example. They're 10-2, and but we can all agree their offense this year does not look as dynamic and deadly as it did last year. And you have a lot of the same pieces offensively there last year and this year. The difference is a new coordinator. Okay, Nick Sirianni's still there, but he's not calling the plays. It's was Shane Sykin last year. Now it's Brian Johnson this year. That change of coordinator 
has been a difference. Now, Jalen Hurts' health as well, but that coordinator change has impacted the offensive explosiveness of Philly, despite the fact that the talent remains the same. That shows you offensive coaching, good or bad, has a bigger impact than I think just the players on the field. Conversely, look at the 49ers. They just went into Philly, kicked the crap out of the Eagles with a quarterback that was taken in the last pick of the draft last year. Kyle Shanahan can win with whoever's at quarterback. It truly does not matter. But that only happens because he's a great offensive-minded head coach. I don't think if Brock Purdy's on any other team, he's having this high of level of success this quickly. I don't think anywhere else you look, he is winning all these games and right now being the front runner for the MVP in year number two of his career if he's on any other team in the league. So coaching does directly impact in a positive way. That is Brock Purdy. We're seeing right now a coaching change in a negative way impacting Philly. It happens all at really all levels of the NFL. And even on the bottom, too. Like, we started this by talking about uh, the athletic article that I was reading today that highlighted Frank Reich's exit. I don't think Bryce Young is a bad quarterback. I know it's been ugly to start, but I don't think this is who he is. I don't think he's going to be a bust. I think he's still going to develop into being one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. But with that said, even a guy who I think is going to be one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL can't overcome bad coaching, and it's dragged him down to the point where the Panthers have won one game, and Bryce Young is already looking like one of the worst quarterbacks in the league. Like a detail really stuck out to me. And the Athletic article did a tremendous job reporting on Frank Reich's firing. They were detailing part of the reasons why David Tepper decided to fire Frank Reich. One of the reasons they cited was you had coaches and personnel members that were fearing for their job going behind Frank Reich's back to go right to Tepper himself to basically say, look, they ain't coaching fundamentals. Bryce Young's footwork is off. We need a fix. And they're basically citing that Bryce Young was not consistently taking the proper depth in his dropbacks. Like if it's a five-step drop, let's say, for example, he was only taking four steps or four and a half. And that those coaches were saying that one step or half step is a big reason why he's getting sacked more than he should and maybe why more balls are getting batted down than they otherwise normally should when this play calls out, when the protection is what it is. And according to the athletic article, like two weeks ago, Tepper went to Reich and went to um, Josh McCown, their quarterback coach, and said, hey, look, let's get Bryce's footwork better. So they started working on Bryce Young's footwork, despite it being a problem all year, two weeks ago. That's a problem. If you can't have coaching that identifies something that Bryce Young is doing wrong, that is impacting his play on the field directly, and you wait until week 10 to figure it out because you got a tip from your owner, who got a tip from another coach who I don't know if it was afraid to tell Frank because he's going to say, no, I doubt that. Frank Reich, by all accounts, is a very nice guy, so I don't think he's going to tell the guy to screw off. Maybe trying to impress the new owner and save his job by going up to him and saying, hey, look, David, this is what I saw. That's why you should trust me. Whatever it is, problems with Bryce Young's fundamentals were being ignored and or not recognized for, like, the first 10 games of the season. That's problematic. So, again, you see the impact of coaching in a positive way. Colts, Browns, um, Vikings, 
49ers. You have a great offensive mind. It does not matter who's at quarterback and who's healthy. You are in a position to win every single game. If you have a bad coach, it doesn't matter who your quarterback is. Justin Herbert, Josh Allen, you are being torn down. You are missing the playoffs. In the case of Bryce Young, you're not getting developed in the way you should be getting developed. And that's why I think it all adds up to at this point. I think head coaches overtaken in terms of importance to winning, overtaking the quarterback position. We always talk about a quarterback is the biggest and most important position in all sports. From a playing perspective, it still is. But I think now from a team-building perspective, when you look at, hey, if I have the option, let's just say, in one hand, I have the best offensive-minded head coach in the league. In the other hand, it's I have the best quarterback in the league. Which one would you rather have? I'm taking the best offensive-minded head coach every time. Because now I don't need an elite quarterback. I can win with less. If that quarterback, God forbid, gets hurt, I could still win games. My season is not ruined. Look at the Jets, for example. Aaron Rodgers got hurt four plays into the season. Why is it that the Colts, the Browns, and the Vikings all have missed their quarterback for large stretches of time, yet they are in the playoffs, but the Jets are scraping the bottom of the barrel and are one of the worst teams in their conference and one of the worst teams in the league? Despite things being equal, your quarterback's out for the rest of the year. The reason is coaching. Robert Sala has not gotten a grip on this team, but also Nathaniel Hackett is an awful play caller, an awful offensive mind. So it doesn't matter if it's Zach Wilson, if it's Trevor Simeon, if it's Tim Boyle. It doesn't matter. That offense doesn't have a chance because they are being led by incompetence. And that incompetence, like we've been seeing, is too much to overcome when it comes from the coaching perspective. Look at Trevor Lawrence. Another example, number one overall pick in the draft, being talked about in the likes of uh, Andrew Luck, John Elway, can't miss, sure thing, the Jaguars got themselves a superstar. Well, in year number one, Trevor Lawrence would look like Bryce Young's looking now. Awful. One of the worst quarterbacks in the league. Why? Urban Meyer. Trevor couldn't escape the stench of Urban. That incompetence from the head coach, dragged him down. And now with Doug Peterson, the last year and a half, things looked a lot better. Trevor Lawrence has now given you reason to believe you're a Jaguars fan. Things look a whole lot different now than they did this time, it would be two years ago. 2021. That's directly because of the coach. Trevor Lawrence didn't change his playing style. He didn't all of a sudden magically just get better Coach was the change. And that's the difference. And that's why I think at this point, I think we got to really start looking more at the head coach and saying, well, that's really, you know, having a massive impact here. More than just the quarterback. And that's why, I go back to this, why I think if I am a member of the Chicago Bears, I am taking that number one overall pick that I have because of Carolina. I'm not drafting Caleb Williams. I'm trying to trade for a bona fide offensive-minded head coach. Sean McVay, Kyle Shanahan, Shane Sykin, Kevin O'Connell, Brian Dable. I'm giving those teams a call and trying my best to lure them to Chicago. Because I think for the Bears to finally figure it out, right? they've never had a quarterback in their franchise history. 
to for them to finally get it right and figure it out, it's not drafting Caleb Williams and expecting him to be the savior. That has never really worked in the past for any team, let alone the Bears. It's not going to work this year. But getting that right offensive-minded head coach in there first that knows what to do with talent, that knows how to put talent in position to succeed, that if you're the Bears and you pick fourth, I don't think it matters who you get a quarterback. You've got to believe, if let's just say you have Sean McVay as your head coach, that whoever he gets in the draft, you're going to feel really damn confident he's going to get the most out of that guy. Whereas if you have Matt Eberflus and Luke Getze coaching up Caleb Williams, well, I love Caleb Williams. I don't think he's having success with those two guys leading him. So I think head coach at this point has surpassed quarterback where it comes to impact on winning and importance to the team. For a while, it was quarterback one, everything else below it. I think now quarterback's got to go down to number two, head coach, offensive-minded head coach, preferably. Sitting there, I think, as the most important key to winning for an NFL team, quarterback now has gone down to number two. You'll see. The Bears would never do it. I think that that's the right, the right move for them to get back here on the winning track. All right, if you missed any part of the show, do not fret. You can catch up by downloading and subscribing to the Hick at Night podcast. Night spelled N-I-T-E. All four hours of today's show. All four hours of yesterday's show. All four hours of my Saturday morning, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. Eastern show will be uploaded to that podcast page available wherever you get your podcast. It's free. Set up to date with what I am doing right here on CBS Sports Radio. Also, check out uh, my YouTube page, Ryan Hickey. Subscribe there. A lot of video content uploaded there as well. A big thank you to Jack Cardi. Did a tremendous job producing. A big thank you to John Morosi, live from the MLB Winter Meetings, for giving us some time as well. JR Sport Brief is up next. Enjoy the rest of your week. It's been Ryan Hickey with you right here on CBS Sports Radio.